Hey there. The holidays are here, so it's good to know Fred Meyer can save you some time with free pickup on all your fresh favorites. Whether your traditions call for a hearty helping of juicy ham, ample apple pie, or Aunt Sue's legendary twice-stuffed stuffing, Fred Meyer has got you covered. So order for free pickup at fredmeyer.com or the app and get more time to get your holiday on when you grab your groceries curbside. Fred Meyer, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Welcome to the Everyday Mindfulness Show, the off-the-cuff exploration of everyday aha moments and life experiences. Join a cast of over 70 uniquely brilliant individuals. Each week, Mike Domish and an eclectic mix of cast members and special guests will engage in mindful and lively conversations about everything from meditation to spirituality to personal passions to successes and failures to relationships to the stuff that makes up the moments of our daily lives. Let's get started with your host, author, speaker, provocateur, and a bit of a goofball, Mike Domish. This week's program is brought to you by the Can I Kiss You program, an interactive how-to skills-based program for school systems, universities, and the U.S. military throughout the world, addressing consent, bystander intervention, respecting boundaries, how to talk about what you want and don't want, and supporting survivors of sexual assault. Now, for many of you listeners out there know, this is what I do for a living. I travel the world giving the Can I Kiss You program and many other trainings throughout the world. So yes, this is me uh, that you're bringing in to speak. If you're interested, contact our offices. Ask for Rita at the Date Safe Project. Our website's datesafeproject.org or you can call Rita at 800-329-9390. That's this week's sponsor of this episode. Hi, yes, I'm your host, Mike Domish, and thrilled to be here with our cast from the Everyday Mindfulness Show. This week's cast includes Megan Merchant, Bernie Shong, and Maria Janowiak. And we are thrilled to have all three of them on here. Now, if you're wondering, hey, where do I learn about them? How do I find out about these brilliant people? You simply go to our website, everydaymindfulnessshow.com, and you'll find everything you need on that website. This week's show is about living minimally. And this quote that I read in a book really got me thinking about this. And here is the quote. Live minimally and thus live more free. The author was Timber Hawkeye. The book was Buddhist Boot Camp. It was actually an audiobook that I was listening to and I heard that and I said, oh, I love that. So Megan, what does living minimally mean to you? My name's Megan and I'm a failed minimalist. I can honestly say that. And if you have been to my house or inside of my car, I think you would agree. So for me, it's a goal that I have. But I love that you said with that quote that it means having more freedom. And the reason why I want to embrace minimalism into our lives is to have that freedom, but more importantly, to have that happiness. So I can be free to be happy in this moment instead of waiting to be happy because I'm too busy cleaning up all of the toys that my children scattered around or taking care of all of the stuff that we have around us just being consumed and swallowed by it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, Maria, what, what does that mean to you? 
Yeah, definitely. I think that this is a great example. And what Megan said is, is true. I, I don't call myself a failed minimalist. I like to think of myself as an aspiring minimalist. <laughs> but the idea there is absolutely that you don't want to get mired down in the, the little things. I think sometimes people hear minimalism and they think it means that you can only own 10 things. But really, it's about living in alignment with your values and being able to devote all the time to the things you love and care about and ignore the rest. Well, and I love where that goes from, which is it's not a control factor. Because I do think that's what people hear. I think you're right, Maria, that when people hear living minimally, they think I have to restrict, I have to control, and therefore it feels burdensome. It does not feel freeing. It feels burdensome. Or even there can be guilt behind that, right? Because no, there are things I need to have around me that are important to me. And now I feel guilty because they're not around me. It, it becomes very conflicting for people. For me, it's hard to define the, you know, the word um, being minimal or minimalism because I, f- I feel like it's, you could use the word interchangeably with being more intentional. I have found that over the course of the past eight to nine years that I left my corporate job and became an entrepreneur, small business owner, there were so many things I had to let go of, right? My definition of what success meant to me, what did it look like, what did it feel like, how I measured things in life in terms of where I am, who I am versus those who've either come before me or those, my peers. And I think that a lot of the comparison game was because I've, again, measured success based on what my definition of being enough meant. And I feel like the more that I've started to be intentional about the way I chose to live, the people I chose to engage with, the choices I made every day in my lifestyle or even consumption in terms of, you know, food and material things, I have found that I now at a place where I'm content with the things that I own, I'm content with the things that I do, and I'm content with the people that I've surrounded around me because I want them to be there versus I felt like I had to have it there in order to define who I was. And I love how you brought up food and material. Like we don't normally hear that. Normally people just bring up material items. Yeah, I guess um, along these lines, I was kind of thinking about the one example, and maybe I, the one I did come to is more on the material side of things, so maybe it's it's not the best, but it was sort of thinking about when we went to buy our house, we made, we could have bought a nicer house, a bigger house, and they tried to sell us that, but we ended up buying a really small house, and it was freeing because there's half as much mortgage, half as much stuff, half as much maintenance, and it's more in alignment with what we want, so we get to spend all the time on the other things. Well, and I think that's the tough part is understanding that you adjust to the half so fast and that people don't recognize that that's a possibility that I could adjust to having half because it would be after six months, the half is full. In other words, that's all you have. So that's your full. It's amazing to me that over the, you know, over the time of, of our lives and our kids and our family moving, when we were in the tiny house, there were six of us living there and we survived. And then we moved to a house that gave us more space. Suddenly it's full. That half opens the door for so much more, though. When you're talking about material things and downsizing, which a lot of people think minimalism is strictly related to, for instance, we just cleaned out our entire kitchen. I was like, why do we have 20 spatulas? How many people in our family? We have four. Are we all going to be using, you know, all these spatulas at the same time? It's really not likely. 
we just cleaned out our entire kitchen and it actually opened up all of this other time and space. So instead of I'm doing more dishes or I'm folding more laundry because we had more clothing, I'm putting away more stuff. It opens the door for more time and that time can be used to spend with your family and your friends and doing your hobbies and following your passions. That less becomes more and more enriching in your life. Yeah, and that's exactly what he was talking about in the quote. And I found that to be true because then we went, we filled the larger home and now we are looking to downsize. Now our kids are older and so we're, we're actually looking to move. And we ended up emptying out a couple of van loads of stuff out of our house, getting house ready and an entire large pot, right? And it's right. And I walk around the house and I don't feel like, oh, I don't feel at all like the house is empty. It's just amazing how much we don't, and, and you start living this way for a month or so and you're like, well, I don't really miss any of those things that we removed that I thought, oh, I, you know, that we, we know, can't get rid of that, can't get rid of that. But when you force yourself to, and that's where it becomes interesting, which is when, in this case, it was a circumstance that forced it. And so I wonder if it's instead of a circumstance, is it a vision? It is a vision that makes us feel like, no, I, there, I, there's, I can do without this, or at least I could try. What if I tried to live without this for and put all this away for six months? And then maybe after one month, I just give it all away because I've lived for a month without it and I don't need it. So what do you all think? Is there a way to create a vision to get to this place versus a forced circumstance? Like a move is a forced circumstance. We're currently struggling with that. <laughs> That's why I called myself a failed minimalist. And I said that in kind of a joking way. I do like aspiring. I, I do. Uh, I think it's I, so much more positive. <laughs> <laughs> so we're working. We do have that vision because we're trying to create, you know, that freedom in our lives that we're not being tied to the maintenance and the care of things. We'd rather choose to do the maintenance and the care of people and experiences in our life. So for us, it absolutely is a vision and it's, you know, and they say, like, hold up this object and does it make you feel happy? Does it serve a direct purpose? And if not, set it aside. And that's what we've been practicing in our household. Well, what a great question. Hold it up. And does this make me happy? And I wouldn't, I guess there's a follow up question, that, right? What makes me happy about it? it? Does its presence need to be necessary for that to occur? Right? Because I can feel happy holding, let's say that I, there's a child has a toy. I can say, I love holding this toy when it's in my hand. But <laughs> if I never play with it, then I still need to ask, and how often am I going to play with this, utilize this to, for that happiness? Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, for me, every, every book I hold up is, does this make me happy? Well, yes, it does, and it will, so we're, we're keeping it. <laughs> well, I think that's a really good part, and oh my gosh, every book is valuable, but it's so hard, so I think one of the things I really focus on is structuring my life to just minimize the things coming in, knowing that the things that are already in my possession are really tricky to deal with, and that once I have a book, I'm going to want it forever, <laughs> but instead, thinking about creating some situations that make it so I only, you know, maybe I still acquire books, but I don't acquire all the other things in my life. So that way I don't have to deal with it on the end. It's, you know, kind of more maybe on the supplies, you know, on the starter side, input side than outputs is maybe an easier place to approach some of these issues. But that's a good point, though, Maria, that you make, because if those books matter to you, then you're intentionally keeping them. So it's not waste. It's not clutter. It's not 
taking up space, right? Because it's useless. It actually is useful. You actually are using them. You're actually reading them. And I, and I think that's also the misconception at times. Um, and I think both of you talked about this before, about what minimalism means or how to minimize your life. And it doesn't mean, you know, you have less objects, therefore you are a minimal person. I think it just means you know what you want in your life and you know what matters to you and you're creating space to allow yourself to have room for those things that matter. The things being relationships or you know, material objects or, or whatnot, your passion projects and whatnot. So I think it's a beautiful thing. And even for, for those who are listening, if you're afraid to get rid of books, I had a tons of books as well. And when I finally let some of them go, I replaced them by buying the Kindle version, right? Or saving like a PDF version of it so that I still have an electronic format anytime I wanted to refer back to some chapter, but I don't necessarily have the physical book in my hand. If I haven't touched that physical book for a few years, it didn't make sense for me to keep it. So that's another you know, technique people could use if they do want to get rid of some things, get rid of clutter, but still keep things that matter to them. Well, and I was, I was going to go there. So I'm glad you brought that up, Bernie, which is books are an interesting item. And for anyone listening, it could be any item, right? We're using books as an example here. It sounds like we're, we all love them. I found that there's usually only, and everybody's different. You know, one of you may say, no, for me, there's a hundred books I continually read over and over again. But for most people, that's not true. There's there's a handful to two handfuls of books they continually repeat read. If they do that at all, a lot of people don't do that at all. Uh, so then you start to say, okay, what that book taught me is priceless. The lessons in that book are priceless. Do I have those down? Have I recorded those somewhere? So for me, and after every book I read, I create an Evernotes file just filled with quotes from the book and my thoughts. And, and that's in my computer. And I can, have, I can read any book. I can have 100 of those book notes different from every book. That's with me forever. I can hand the book off to another person now to enjoy, to really love and treasure. Or recently, one of my friends, about a year ago, a good friend of mine, his son was doing a Boy Scout Eagle Project, and they're trying to create a library for an underprivileged community. And we found ourselves shipping like, I think it was like four to six complete boxfuls of books to them. And suddenly they were gone. And those were books that a lot of them that we really loved or the kids did growing up, but honestly, we're not reading them on a regular basis. And somebody else is going to get great joy from them. And I think that's where there becomes, a, I think there is a litmus test that has to be applied because I love what we're all saying about does this serve me? Do I love this? But for the person who doesn't get rid of stuff, they'll argue that every every collection they collect, that's true of. There's got to be some kind of marker there that says, okay, while I'm keeping the things in my life that allow me to be intentional, I'm I'm doing this in a way that's not minimal. Like we have to be honest with ourselves, right? That's part of that mindful discovery of sometimes we got to be honest and say we're we're we're, lying, we're telling ourselves a bit of a lie here, a myth. I think a lot of people hold on to things because of what it says or represents about them. So that the way, if somebody comes into the house, like, oh, you have 5 million books, and they like that because then they think, oh, you're well-read, you're an intellectual, you're knowledgeable. And so a lot of the things that we collect, we do for status or yes. for ego construction. Yes, or family guilt. I know, I know a lot of people that have stuff in their house that is history. It's some form of history. And so you go down into their storage and you start opening up boxes. Uh, oh, no, that's that history. And that's that history. And But they've been in boxes for 12 years. So and, and then you start to ask yourself, if the house burned down, 
and everything was lost. Which of those items, if I could only pick one out of each box, would I have kept? What would I have actually changed, put out, and looked at? Because it was that kind of history that I wanted to have in my life. I wanted to have its presence. And the reason I ask that question is that someone that worked for me a few years ago did have a fire, lost everything, and said, you'd be amazed, Mike, how quickly you adapt and realize most of the stuff you weren't looking at, thinking about anyways. It was memories that you always have with you, whether that item's in the box or not. Mike, I love that you brought this story up because I, I actually was going to bring up a follow-up question for all of us and even the audience listeners to, to answer. But I, I, I got to riff off of what you are saying before. We're afraid to let go of some things. We want to hold on to some things. But what if we just let go of some things right now, right? What, what's the worst that could happen? Let's take a book, for example. I had a bunch of books in my library. I kept giving, getting rid of one called the, the Finding Your Own North Star by Dr. Martha Beck, my, one of my favorite books of all time. I kept giving it to people, giving it to people, and part of me was afraid to let it go because it represented a part in my life when I really felt that I started to emerge as a more authentic version of myself, which is what her book's all about. But something about letting go of that book made me fear that if I let go of this book, I'm going to lose a part of that memory, right, or I'm going to lose sentimental value that came with having that book in my possession. But I've literally bought that book probably over 20 times and given it to somebody else because I knew the book mattered, but I can always get it again. I didn't need that specific copy. I can always buy it again. So I, I guess the follow-up question for all of us is like, it's a hard question actually to really to ask because I don't know how to form that question. Maybe you guys can help me. Well, it, what's it, wrong with letting go of things right now? It reminds me of a question, this gets back to Mike's as well, of building on your idea, Bernie, is, is another way I've had the question said is, would you buy it again? And it, it, it's, you know, it's same thing. If, if your house burned down, would you buy this thing again? Or if you just had to, if you had to buy it now, do you really need it? And so there it's like, you, it kind of gets back to your piece about the book too. It's like, oh, well, you would buy it again and again and again. So having it on your shelf makes sense to you because it has that value. But, you know, uh, you know, if Megan lost her spatula, would she buy another one? <laughs> probably not. She probably just sees <laughs> No, I love that. And if you and and the follow-up test, which is if you answer yes to everything, then you need to sit down and have a discussion with yourself. Because if you say yes, I am going to I would buy everything that I currently have. Unless you're already living on a minimal, like you've already done this, right? You've, and you're living minimally. There's no way that answer should be yes, unless you've got a story that you're selling yourself that you can't live without. Right? And, and that's part. And so I think that becomes part of it. Am I selling myself this story? That's And I thought you brought up a good point, Megan, about, you know, earlier about is it status or, you know, and I brought up, is it family history that you feel guilty of if you let that go uh, or that you're losing a part of you? Uh, Bernie, you brought that up with that book. What's the story we tell that doesn't allow us to free ourselves? And that goes to mindfulness at, at its heart, right? That is, is there some story we're selling that we're not even aware of? We haven't dug deep enough to see what's going on there. And the interesting thing about that is with the book that was mentioned, every time that you come back to read it, you come back as a different person with a different perspective, mm -hmm. having already gained lessons from it, processed it, lived it. And so it, it's very interesting when you think about, oh, I, and you mentioned, you know, these people keep reading the same books over and over, but you're not the same person reading the same book over and over. 
And I want to add that when I, when I was saying people who go back and read books over and over again, th- that was not a negative. That was that it, there, most people don't do it. So the book does just sit there. But if you are going back and reading that and having a different experience each time, yes, there you go. There's the value, right? It's bringing value. It's bringing you a form of a gift to your life that, it, that is wonderful. And so we don't, de- once again, we don't want to deny you that, right? Because that's from a pure sense of growth and discovery. Mike, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what my answer was to, to your question, whether it was hypothetical or not, but um, I am not enough and there's not enough in the world. And so wow. uh, that's powerful. That's really powerful for, for anybody to sit and go, is that, what I, is that the story I'm selling? And so having that item does what to that story? It reverses it. See what I have? I'm enough, right? Gotcha. Look at me. I'm successful, gotcha. right? And, and, I, and I know that when I sit with that and I realize that, and, and by the way, I'm not done. <laughs> I'm not done with, you know, because I'm more minimal now and because I'm more intentional and mindful about my choices in life, I'm not done with that inner chatter. I, that comes up quite a bit. And the great thing, though, is having the awareness to know that that is where the fear, if we want to call it that, that's where that comes from. The feelings of at times having inadequacy, feeling not enough, not doing enough, being so hard on yourself or, um, you know, my personal backstory, I grew up in a family of a lot of perfectionists and we grew up poor. So the reality is it wasn't just a hypothetical situation. I actually lived in poverty for quite some time as a youth. I did have an underprivileged and underserved upbringing. So it was my reality. So for me, the fear is I don't want to go back to that again. I think for a lot of people, it would, it would be the opposite. They would try to build themselves up or to fill that space with stuff. It's, your perspective is so beautiful. I'm, I'm just in awe over here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Megan. Right, because, I mean, what's powerful about that is if somebody fears poverty. And what you said, Megan, is, you know, you think then the assumption is they're going to make sure everybody knows they have wealth. So you do have more material items. But what what you're saying, Bernie, is actually by living more minimally, you have the freedom of not having that fear. (laughs) Oh, Mike, you you make me seem smarter than I am. (laughs) No, you know, the funny thing is that's where I am now, you know. So to be serious, thank you for saying that, Mike and and Megan. That's where I am now at 40 years old in my 20s up until maybe even eight years ago, yes, I was living that whole look at me, look at what I have, look at my job title, look at what I'm wearing, look at my status. Absolutely, I was doing all those things. And at the time, I didn't know it was because I'm afraid to go back into poverty. I'm afraid that you're going to know the truth, that I'm not as, and I'm doing air quotes, successful as society would deem me to be if you knew my dirty secrets, right? So it was things like that. So I did. I do know it came from an ego-based place. It definitely did. I don't regret it. Um, I, I am who I am today because of all the experiences I've been through, but I have the awareness to know it now. Uh, then, not so much. Not so much. So, I, you know, thank you for the compliments, but, and, and this is why I you know, try my best to not judge people where, where they're at in their life and, and how they choose to make decisions based on how they're defining success. I'm going to go back to that again because, you know, a lot of the work I do with, with my clients and, and, and peers is helping people to redefine what success means to them. And the reason I find that to be so important when you do that is because it completely, completely reshapes the way you view 
yourself and your place in the world. And I think I've done such a long, hard, I've had such a long, hard look at that. I've done so much work on that, that today that's why I have the awareness to know that those things don't matter anymore to me. Well, it is. It's beautiful work you're sharing there. And that's what's powerful. And when you you brought that up, I think that's that's the journey, right? And so the question, and we're all at different places in that journey. I fell into the exact same trap. There's no doubt about it. When when we first built my had my office done, I had this big, beautiful, glamorous office desk setup system, and we had we had one for me and one for for my partner Karen, and so we had all of it. And then you start to go, man, this is cumbersome. But you know what got us there was listening to society, listening to people who are highly successful, saying the atmosphere you set in your office sets your mindset. You know, in that kind of belief system that you have to build this certain hierarchy of a sense of wealth to help you think on a higher level, which was really garbage, but it sold well. I mean, it got you in the mindset of I want to be like them. <laughs> I want to be like them. So I have to have a room like them because they said that. And just like they say, you got to dress for success. It's that same mentality versus going, you know what? And so we downsized. We, I got rid of that desk that was beautiful. I got rid of it and went to a really, really simple home office depot thing you build yourself that was on wheels that I could move anywhere in my room so I could do recordings and film and everything. But it's so basic. You know what? It's so freeing. I, there's so little in my office. There's so much more room in my office. But it, it took me having to have that honest conversation about why do I have this desk? It's I not that serving me. sold well. That the idea that was impressed upon you sold well. I mean, that's the heart of what we're talking about here. <laughs> and that living Absolute. mindfully is recognizing that, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, and, and, I, and like Bernie said, it, you don't recognize it at the time. It's that it's when you get to that new, that new step you're taking. I don't want to say phase because hopefully it's not just a phase, but but that to that next journey level that you look back and go, oh yeah, I got suckered. You know, I I I, I, I oh fell gosh. into the trap. <laughs> yeah, let me. I want. I have two little vignettes to share with you guys because I absolutely identify this with this and what with what Bernie said. Kind of those two sides of that coin, and this made me flash back to being really young and we growing up very lower middle working class, not having a lot. And I used to sit, remember the JCPenney like wish book at Christmas? Oh, I used yes. To, I used to, I remember being eight years old laying like on the floor in our living room and paging through it. And I had a little calculator and I would try and buy a million dollars worth of stuff to fill my mansion. <laughs> and just like, be like, I need 17 TVs and whatever, you know, because that was what we were, you know, essentially being sold. Literally, it was a catalog and that was the message. And I was a kid and that's what I was thinking about. And now, you know, so, so flash forward, you know, 20 years later, you know, as an adult, I was deciding, we were deciding to pay off our student loans and be responsible and get off the rat race hamster wheel and instead now it's like I won't go into a store like I, I avoid it at all costs because every time you go in you get like all this stuff you don't want so I just don't go in but it has been a really big shift I think I've spent much more of my life being in the, the latter but everybody like you said goes through their own kind of path on this well, and I've seen the flip side of it where I agree with you. I mean, that was a great example you just gave them, Maria, of the kids looking through the catalog at Christmas and, you know, they circle all the items that they would want on their list. And then our kids got older. And as our kids got older, 
they and I believe out of the cast members on this discussion right now, I've, I've got the oldest kids as far as where everybody is in life. And they're like, uh, what do you want for Christmas? Eh, I'm good. You know, uh, give me a card, a gift card or something. And, and at first the parents, you're as a parent, you're like, well, that's no fun. Like there's nothing in that that you don't want to go through. Give me a big list. And you do this to yourself because you're in the trap of it's about that idea of Christmas that you get all these options to go shop and buy for versus what if it, it was never about it? I mean, you know that as a parent, it's not about that. You, you teach that, but yet you still get caught in that at that spirit of that time because that's yeah. what the world is selling. Uh, and then you should step back and go, well, that's great, right? It's great that they're not going, I expect this, you know, or I'm expecting that. That's wonderful. But yet there's a sense of like, it's weird. Because society says that's not the way they're supposed to act. I'm unfortunately the parent who, my son's eight now, my oldest, and we talk about the environmental impact of his purchasing choices. And so I'm the parent who's in that aisle of Target, and we're examining the toy, and I'm like, let's look where it was made. Let's look what it's made out of. How long do you think you're going to play with this? Is this going to end up in the landfill in two weeks when you're tired of it and forgotten about it? And the other parents walk by, and they roll their eyes, and they make faces at me. And I recognize, you know, that's that's not mainstream. But yeah, I'm trying to teach my children and I hope they grow up to, to be like yours and they just ask for a gift card instead of the 50,000 plastic toys that are going to end up in the landfill. Well, and that's some brilliant parenting right there. I did not have that introspective place at that time. I absolutely credit you. That's brilliant to think what's the what are the consequences to this choice? Because that's really what you're teaching. What are the con- and everything we've discussed today comes back to that. What's the consequence to this choice? Could this tie me down? Could this take space in my home and therefore there is less open? There, because the more clutter, the less openness there is in a home. It brings us back to some great questions. And the three of you have given me such a great conversation, insights I've learned in this discussion. So, and I'm sure the listeners have too. So thank you for everyone listening right now. Know that's Megan Merchant, Bernie Zhang, Maria Janowak, Janowak, sorry, Maria, I should know better. You can find them all at everydaymindfulnessshow.com, along with lots of freebies that we provide there, downloads that are available for free. Thank all three of you for being on this episode. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. Are there books that the three of you would recommend to help take this pathway? And you brought up one, Bernie. Well, not for this pathway. Um, I've got some friends by the name of uh, the minimalists, uh, Joshua Fields, Milburn, and Ryan Nicodemus, and, and they both live and breathe. This is this is what they do. Um, so I would encourage listeners to just go to their website. I believe it's theminimalist.com, and they've got a bunch of books, a bunch of videos, TEDx talks, and things like that. So that's a great resource for people who want to minimize. Very cool. They, they have a uh, documentary on Netflix right now, yes? yes? Yeah, I was yes. going to recommend that. They're brilliant. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. what inspirations. Yeah. And, and the, the documentary is called, I think, uh, Minimalism. Okay. I think I saw that out there. I haven't seen it all, but I've seen that advertised. So that's awesome. Very cool. There are two that come to mind, but there are long similar themes. One is, of course, I'm not remembering it. One is 168 Hours by Laura Vanderkam. And the other is Your Money or Your Life, which is uh, several years older. But both of them are about tracking one your money, tracking the other your time, and then evaluating that in order to see if you're living in alignment. So while we talked about the possession side, those are really great books on the money and time side and are both fabulous. Very cool. Megan? 
Indirectly, I'm going to recommend any of the poetry books by Mary Oliver because they are grounded and celebrate nature. And so the more that you connect with your uh, natural world, with the environment outside, the less that you want to surround yourself with manufactured goods. (laughs) Very, very cool. And I'm going to throw another book in, and that's Essentialism. So it's called Essentialism, a great book that really dives into this discussion. So I want to thank all three of you again. And until next time, for everyone out there, may you enjoy everyday mindfulness in your life. Three quick reminders. One, please subscribe to the Everyday Mindfulness Show on iTunes. Already subscribed? Then encourage others to join us by inviting them to subscribe to the show. Two, while on iTunes, download all the latest episodes. Three, reviews help more people find out about the show. Would you please go into iTunes and write a review? Doing so helps spread the mission of the show. Thanks. We appreciate you being a part of our vibrant, oftentimes silly, and always vulnerable community. If you have an idea, a thought, want to sponsor the show, or just want to say hi, send us an email at listen at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. And check us out at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Have a joyful, mindful week.